I love stories. Uh, I think I always have, even when I was a kid. Um, I love stories. I love movies. I love books. I love listening to and telling stories with, with other people. And I've come to realize that there's certain elements in stories that I especially love or especially appreciate. I, I love stories with heroes. I, I want to know who the good guy is, and by that matter, who the bad guy is, too. Tell me who's wearing the white hat. Tell me who's wearing the black hat. And for the most part, uh, stories that have these anti-heroes in them, I, I just don't enjoy those kinds of stories as much. I, I love stories with friendship. Um, I've seen that over the years that when there is deep and meaningful friendship in stories where there's companionship and camaraderie and people who are there for one another, those are the kinds of stories that, that I love the most. And I love a story with redemption. It's not that the hero has to be the hero the whole time. Maybe it's the comeback story. Maybe it's the person who fell and had to get back up again. And stories that show our capacity for forgiveness, our capacity for repentance and redemption, those are awesome stories, aren't they? Somebody who was on the wrong path but then gets on the right one. And I love stories with, with a happy ending. If you've heard me preach for any period of time, you know that's the case. Uh, I don't want to spend all of this time and invest all of this emotion into something that makes me feel horrible at the end, especially if it's a made-up story. I mean, you could have made this story end any way you wanted to, and you made it an unhappy ending. I mean, we got real life for that. Real life has plenty of unhappy endings, but a story? No, that's not the kind of story that I want. And when we think about the Bible, the Bible communicates to us in stories. And uh, mostly they're real stories. We know that Jesus used a bunch of made-up stories that we call parables, right, to communicate what his kingdom is like. And even in this period that we're studying on Sunday mornings during the, the time of the kings, if you think about the story of David, David's story is just like this. It contains these elements, doesn't it? David's story is a story with clear heroes and villains. When we think about David and Goliath, we know who the good guy is. We know who the bad guy is. David is a story with deep and meaningful friendships like David and Jonathan, maybe the most powerful example of a physical friendship that we have in all the Bible. David's story is a story of redemption. We think about all of the sins that he committed, the mistakes that he made, maybe most notably with David and Bathsheba, and yet when Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, Thou art the man, David's heart was humble, and he was willing to, to uh, repent, and ultimately he was redeemed. And in so many ways, David is a story with a happy ending. Solomon, his son, becomes king. Solomon builds the temple. And David has all of these promises from 2 Samuel chapter 7 of a future. And that, that there's going to be a Messiah that comes from him who's going to make everything right, whose kingdom is going to endure forever. This is David's story. But as we continue in the book of Kings, we find a lot of stories that don't have these elements. And 1 Kings chapter 13 is that kind of story. It's a story where there are no clear heroes, where there is no friendship, there's no redemption, and there's no happy ending. It seems as though when we read the story, it seems as though maybe these things are going to take place, but in the end, none of those elements are found. And so open up your Bible and turn to 1 Kings 13. Ah, 
What a letdown, right? This is the kind of story that we're going to talk about this morning. Well, I think it's important for us to talk about this for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's not just a story. It's an account. This really happened with real people. This is real life. And it's not something where we can just make up whatever ending we want because this is the way things happened. But secondly, this is an account with vitally important lessons for us to learn today. And so even though it's not the kind of story that I like, maybe sometimes it's the kind of story that I need. Um, This is an account that comes from our reading this week in the days of Jeroboam. The kingdom has been divided after the deaths of Solomon, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And Jeroboam says to himself in 1 Kings 12 in verse 26, the kingdom may return to the house of David. These people may go out, offer sacrifices in Jerusalem and they follow after Rehoboam and they kill me. So his solution is to make a calf, two golden calves in fact, one in Dan in the far north of Israel and one in Bethel in the far south of Israel. But of course, God is not pleased with this uh, departure from his will. And so he sends an unnamed prophet, identified only as a man of God, to Jeroboam in Bethel. And that's where we take up the story in 1 Kings chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Would you read with me, please? And behold... Uh, Just a little tip for studying or reading your Bible. Anytime the Bible says, behold something, it's about to get good. Like, this this is a big deal, right? Behold, listen up, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David. And on you he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places who burn incense on you. And men's bones shall be burned on you. Now if we didn't know the rest of this story, if we didn't know how this ended, we would say, well, clearly here's our hero. The hero is this man of God. And you as good Bible students know that that phrase, the man of God, is usually used in a very positive way. In fact, universally it's used positively of someone who is a faithful follower of God. In this time period, specifically in our Old Testaments, it's used of true prophets, both named and unnamed, including Moses and David and some prophets that are going to come a little later in the Kings like Elijah and Elisha. And people who are called a man of God are characterized by two things. They were true prophets whose words came true, and they spoke with great boldness and zeal and authority from God. Seventeen times in this chapter, the text refers to the word of the Lord, or the Lord says. And we know that this was a real man of God who spoke the true words of the Lord because of two things in our text. First of all, This is going to come to pass. This actually comes true in 2 Kings 23. There was a boy king named Josiah, and he did all of the things that are found here. But of course, that's years and years into the future, so they wouldn't know that at this time. And so in order to confirm the word of the Lord that this is a true prophet, if we keep reading in verses 3 through 5, God gives a sign at that time 
to show this truly was the prophet of God. Verse 3, And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, he cried out against the altar, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him! And his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered, so that he could not pull it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of God. Of the Lord. So we see from the beginning of this story that this is a true prophet with a true message. And in verse 6, the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me so that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord. That's just, he asked earnestly, you really ask God uh, about this. So he did that. And the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. Everything seems to be going right in this story. The man of God comes with a message from God. That message is going to come true. He gives a sign. In fact, it ends up being two signs that God is really working with him. And he even prays to God and God answers that prayer. But then in verses 7 through 10, we see a specific commandment that God had given to this prophet. The king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half of your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way. So he went another way, and he did not return by the way he came to Bethel. All right, here's my question to all of us. We're following the story. Was this command clear? Yes or no? Was this command clear? Yes. Did the man of God understand clearly the command? Yes. Was there any misunderstanding, ambiguity about what it was he was supposed to do? No confusion whatsoever, right? And so what I want to do is I want us to take this account that where everything's gone right so far, but we know it's going to end up being a sad story. And, and I want us to take eight applications or lessons or whatever you want to call it from this sad story. And the first one is this. The word of the Lord is reliable to tell us what we need to know. God's Word tells us what it is that we need to know in order to live our lives and in order to do what God would have us to do. Mark your spot there in 1 Kings chapter 13. We'll come back to verse 11 here in a second. Turn to the New Testament. This is true for us today in 2 Peter chapter 1, toward the end of the New Testament. In 2 Peter chapter 1. Notice what Peter says. Beginning in verse 2. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Have knowledge of God. 
As his divine power has given to us, that's probably the apostles, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, all of these other things. Peter says, everything that pertains to life, and specifically godliness in this life, has been revealed to us, the apostles. And you need to add to your faith this kind of knowledge of what God would have you uh, to do. Where do we find that knowledge? We find it in the Word of God. Even Peter himself later in this same chapter says, I've been careful to make sure these things are written down so you have a record of them even after I leave this life. And yet there are many, many even who claim to be followers of Christ who say, we can't understand. We can't understand for sure what it is God wants for us. And my response to that beyond just what the scriptures clearly say is this. God created communication. Have you ever thought about that? God was the one who created communication to begin with, and God was the one who created us as human beings. So doesn't it stand to reason that God knows how to communicate His will to us in a way that's understandable, in a way that we can know it and, and do it? I trust, I have faith that he can communicate us in, in, to us in that way, in a way that can be understood. And God chose to communicate the way he did because that's the way that's most effective in revealing hearts that want to follow after his will. It is communication that is intended to be understood. Even in, if you go back to the book of Ephesians, for example, in Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 3. Paul says something very similar to what Peter said in 2 Peter. He says in verse 3 of Ephesians 3, How that by revelation he has made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So God revealed all things that pertain to life and godliness to the apostles. The apostles spoke those things and wrote those things down. And Paul says, when you read, you can understand my knowledge, his knowledge, in the mystery of Christ and what God would have you to do. And, and maybe we say, okay, it was spoken and it was written to be understood and we can understand it. But sometimes the question is not what God says, it's why. And maybe even if we go back to our text in 1 Kings chapter 13, think back to that text, maybe that's our question there. Why? Why could he not eat bread and drink water? Why did he have to return a different way? Why? The text doesn't tell us. It doesn't appear as though even the man of God knew why on this question. And I think there's another lesson for us to learn in that. Our conviction on what is true is based on a clear understanding of what the Word of God says, not necessarily why it says what it says. God communicates to us and sometimes He reveals this is the reason why I want you to do what it is I'm telling you to do and sometimes He doesn't. But either way, you know what our job is, our responsibility is to do it. 
to listen to it, to understand, and if we understand, to do, because we have hearts that love God. And so if we understand what it is God is communicating, the why, that could be helpful to us, that can provide motivation, but we still need to do what it is that God tells us to do. Even here in Ephesians, we see that again, um, if we go back to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, go forward a chapter or so, in regard to us as Christians, we're supposed to, in verse 13, come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We have unity when we all agree, this is what God says and this is what we're going to do. But on the other hand, we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But, speaking the truth in love, that's when we may grow up into all things, into Him who is the head, Christ. And we see just the opposite if we drop down to verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you, you Christians... You should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts. Why is it that these who do not become Christians, why do they not know the truth of God? Because of their hearts. Because they choose not to know what it is God would have them to do. Do you know what God requires of you? Then do it. And that's what is required for all of us. Let's go back to our text in 1 Kings chapter 13. And in verse 11, there's a new character that's introduced. An old prophet, he is called. And maybe we think, at first glance, maybe this is our friendship Maybe this is the mentor, the supporter that the man of God needs. But sadly, no, this is instead a false friend. Read verse 11. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. Verse 12. And their father said to them, which way did he go? For his son said, seen which way the man of God who came from, went, who came from Judah. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he rode on it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread or drink water from you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread or drink water there nor return by going the way you came. Again I ask, was there any confusion about what God's will was up to this point? Did the man of God know what God wanted him to do? Yeah, absolutely he did. Then we get to verse 18. And he, the old prophet, said to him, I too am a prophet as you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, 
Bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. And in my Bible, it's in parentheses. He was lying to him. He was lying to him. What was the motivation of the old prophet? Why do you think he was lying? Was it for his own gain, perhaps? Was it out of jealousy that he's been a prophet this, his whole life? He's never done anything like this young man. Or Was it to gain favor from the king, Jeroboam, who's now in power? Some have suggested that the old prophet was testing the man of God to see his true character. I think that's unlikely. Others say he just wanted to be associated with a real man of God to give him greater credibility in the things he was going to do. But the, the fact of the matter is we just don't know. We don't know what his motivation was. And maybe, maybe that is the point. It doesn't matter how sincere this old prophet was or not. It doesn't matter whether he had the best interest of the man of God at heart or not, whether he knew this was going to lead to the death of the man of God or not. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. The man of God still knew what was right and he shouldn't have listened to the old prophet. No matter the motives of those who are preaching or teaching error, it still leads us into destruction if we follow after that error. And I think a lot of times we waste time. We spend all this time dissecting the motivations of hearts that we can't read anyway. Why is somebody preaching this thing that isn't true? Why is that the case? Well, I can't read their heart and neither can you. Let God deal with their motives and He will in judgment. Our job is to reject the error and hold fast to the truth. Here's my question. Could the young prophet have known that the old prophet was lying? I would say yes in a couple of different ways. He could have known because God doesn't contradict himself and God's word does not contradict itself if taken in its entirety. Uh, Psalm 119 and verse 160 is one of my favorite phrases uh, in the Psalms. It says, the sum of your word is truth. In other words, you take everything that the Bible has to say on a subject, that is the truth of that subject. And there are times, yes, when God might change a command from one time to another for specific purposes, but that's always revealed specifically. It's not a contradiction. In this passage, it was, God says this, no wait, God says that. And God's word doesn't work that way. And secondly, if this man of God was unsure, what could he have done? He could have asked. He could have, to use the word from earlier in the chapter, he could have entreated the Lord about this. And for us, if we hear something that someone says or teaches that is contrary to what we understand the Bible to teach, what should we do? Should we reject it out of hand? Well, that's not what I've always believed, so I'm not going to listen to that. Not necessarily. Instead, if we are unsure, we need to entreat the Lord through prayer and entreat the Lord through study. In Acts chapter 17, we see that Paul comes to this city of Berea and the Jews who were there were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? They were fair-minded. Why? Because they heard these things that Paul said, things that they had never heard before, 
And they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. That's Acts chapter 17 verses 10 through 12. And too often, perhaps, we understand the word of the Lord about something, but then we get into a specific situation and we have to apply the clarity of God's word and in the situation we come to a different understanding. That's the phrase that I've heard used. We, we have justification for what we're doing. And Christians, even faithful Christians, have done that through the years with marriage, divorce and remarriage, or fornication, or drinking, or homosexuality, or a whole host of other issues. God's word is clear, but, you know, in this situation, maybe, maybe there's something else that we can do. What we need to do is pray. We need to study. What does God's word say? And we cannot ever take someone else's word for it. Instead, we need to be convicted about God's word because we've studied it ourselves. You've studied it yourself, and you've found it to be so. Don't take my word for it. The elders, Harold, or anybody else. Don't take your parents' word for it. Now, consider what they say, obviously. They love you. I love you. The elders love you. We have your best interest at heart. But, but even those noble motives are not enough. They do not replace your own faith and finding it for yourself. We all need to ask ourselves, why do I believe what I believe? And when we answer that question from God's Word, we need to be convicted of it. Why do we need to raise the same questions again and again if we're convicted on the truth of the matter? I was talking with someone not too long ago, and they said, you know what I'm going to do? I, I just need a fresh study on, and he gave the topic. I'm just going to start over from scratch, he said. Just start over all again. And my question was, why? Start over from scratch? Why? Uh, are you unconvinced of what it is you believe? Well, no. Has someone brought up a scripture to you that indicates something other than what you were convicted of? No. Then why start fresh? Why do you need a new perspective when you're convicted about what God's Word teaches? And at some point, if that's our constant pattern of, I'm convicted about this, but, you know, maybe there could be some exception or whatever, our motivations may be revealing themselves to be less than noble. It is no longer a search for truth. Sometimes it can turn into a search for self-justification. Some time ago, I, I had somebody contact me, a, a brother in Christ that I had known in times past, and, and he contacted me and he had a number of questions about, about something that was going on in his life. And so we talked about those things, um, not verbally, we, we corresponded about those things. Um, and I happen to know him and the, the preacher where it is that he attends on a regular basis, so I just gave that preacher a call. I said, hey, just want to give you a heads up. You know, this brother called me, and he's talking to me about this, and these are the things that I said to him. I just thought maybe you'd want to be aware of that. And he was quiet on the phone for a little while, and he said, Reagan, he's asked me about those things. I gave him the same answers that you did, but I'm not the only one he's asked. You're maybe the, the 12th person that he's asked about this same exact thing who's given the same exact answer. Well, first of all, my ego goes down, right? Like, number 12, I'm 12 on the list, you know? But what does that reveal? 
I can't read his heart. This other preacher can't read his heart. But he said, I'm afraid that maybe he's just going to keep asking until somebody tells him what he wants to hear. That cannot be our attitude. And I don't know whether that was the attitude of the man of God, but here's what I do know. He was convicted. And multiple times he expressed that conviction. This is from the word of the Lord. And I know this to be true. And this is what I'm going to do in my life. And then this other man comes to him and he says, Well, you know, I heard something different from the Lord. And this is what you need to do instead. And instead of entreating the Lord and saying, Lord, is that true? Has this changed? He just went along with it. And we cannot do that. We cannot do that as Christians. Our attitude has to be one that I want to come back to the Word of God to know with certainty. And when I know with certainty, when I say, yes, this is what God's Word teaches, you're going to have to blast that out with dynamite. And you know what that dynamite is? The Word of God. You're going to have to show me from the Scriptures why I'm wrong about that conviction. May I be convicted when I find the truth of God's Word. Let's go back to our passage and keep reading together. Verse 19. So he went back with him, and he ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back, the old prophet. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread and drank water in the place which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. So it was. Why? Because God said it was going to be so. God said it was going to be so, and so it was. After he had eaten bread and after he had drunk, that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. When he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him, and his corpse was thrown on the road, and the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by the corpse. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road, and the lion standing by the corpse... And they went and told it to the city where the old prophet dwelt. It's so sad. So sad to me. That the man of God's life ends in such a terrible way. God is harsh here. I'm not impugning God in any way. That's just the reality. He disobeyed, and it cost him his life. And if I were the man of God standing before God in judgment, I think I would probably say, wait a second, he lied to me. But in that, there is a lesson too, isn't there? I'm responsible for my own understanding And I'm responsible for my own actions. And so are you. When I stand before God in judgment, someone else may have to answer for leading me astray, but I have to answer for being led astray. 
And there will be no blaming it on someone else. We all need to seek wise counsel. God's Word says that over and over again. We all need to be respectful of those in authority. We all need to be respectful of our elders. But in the end, who is ultimately responsible? I'm responsible for me, and you're responsible for you. And the man of God was responsible for the man of God. And the old prophet would be responsible for the old prophet. And so we keep reading verse 26 through 32. Now when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, It is the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. That seems a little cold, doesn't it? I mean, why was he disobedient? We just said it's his responsibility. You know, he did it. But you were the one who lied to him. Therefore, the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his son, saying, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled it. Then he went and found his corpse thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse, nor torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, and brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. Then he laid the corpse in his own tomb, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas! My brother. So it was after he had buried him that he spoke to his son saying, When I am dead and bury me in the tomb where the man of God was buried, lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines in the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. The old prophet knew what was true. And he mourned over the young prophet here. And maybe we say, well, maybe that's our third element. Maybe that's the redemption. Maybe there's redemption in the old prophet here. And, and I don't know because we aren't told. But I do know that he never really confesses or repents here. It's kind of like, tough luck, you should have listened to the Lord. What I do know is that it was too late for the man of God. Even a true believer and follower will be judged if they reject the word of the Lord. And when it comes to all of this mourning and lamentation that's made over the man of God, when should the old prophet have mourned? I tell you, he should have mourned after he lied and said, I was wrong, that's not really what God said. You need to follow after the word of the Lord. And for, for far too many, far more than what God desires the time of mourning will be too late. It'll be too late after destiny is already sealed that people say, I was wrong. And yet, I'm so grateful to be a Christian. I'm so grateful to live in the age that I live, the messianic age, because Jesus gives us chances that we never thought possible. I've always been struck, keeping your place in 1 Kings 13, I've always been struck by the powerfully haunting words of those who were gathered on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, after Peter gives this sermon to these Jews who were there at Passover, who crucified the Christ, he says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, 
whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They mourned. They said, we were wrong. We shouldn't have done it. But he's dead. He's crucified. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And what Jesus so often does in my life and in the lives of so many is he gives us chance after chance after chance in his long suffering, chances we never thought possible. Do you think there was any way, in their minds, any way that they could fix this? They crucified the Messiah that they'd been waiting on for 2,000 years. Hear the despair in their voice. Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter's answer from the word of the Lord is direct and powerful. It's not too late because Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. By the authority of the very one that you crucified, you can and will be saved. For the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't too late. Jesus rose from the dead. If you're here this morning, it is not too late for you either. to Come and to put Christ on in baptism. And to walk in newness of life. All right, everybody's putting their stuff up. But we're not done. There's a day coming when it will be too late. And so we need to learn from the examples of others. Don't put it off a moment longer. Repent and seek that redemption now. There was judgment against the man of God in 1 Kings chapter 13, but... For whom was that judgment? For whose benefit? For ours, so that we might see clearly the seriousness of obeying the word of the Lord. But it was also for the benefit of the man that we studied in Bible class this morning, Jeroboam. I suggest, in fact, that this account that is included in our Bibles was for Jeroboam as much as it was for anybody else. For Jeroboam to know these are the consequences of disobeying the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam had every opportunity for a happy ending for this story. Except the promises of God. God says he'll set up your house forever. If you obey the word of the Lord. Back there in 1 Kings chapter 11. And verse 38. But, but this is not one of those stories. That's not how this story ended. 1 Kings 13 verses 33 and 34. After this event, the text is being explicit with us. After this event that Jeroboam would have known about, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. But again, he made priests from every class of the people from the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated them. And he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam so as to exterminate and destroy his house from the face of the earth. Jeroboam didn't listen. What a letdown. 
So why is this story here? Why have a story with no heroes and no friendship and no redemption and no happy ending? Why have we spent the last 35 minutes or so thinking about this? Because this, this is the kind of story that you have when no one listens to the word of God. No heroes except those made by God. No true unity and fellowship and friendship except such as is in Christ. No redemption outside of the gospel and obedience to that gospel. And no happy ending now or in eternity without, without obedience to God's word. You've already put all your stuff up, so you're listening well to me. I appreciate that. Here's my cry. Please. Don't let this story be your story. That's not what I want. That's not what God wants. And I can think of no sadder ending than an ending like the man of God. That I knew the word of the Lord. I did the word of the Lord for a long time. And then I listened. I listened to someone lying about the word of the Lord. And I went a different way. Know the word of the Lord. And do it. Because God desires for all to be saved. Repent and confess and be baptized. Allow the Lord to add you to his church with all of the hope of eternal life. And if you're already a Christian and you realize you've been going down the wrong path, thank God no lion has been sent to end your life. God has been long-suffering in the hope that you would come back. Won't you come back? Won't you come back now while together we stand and while we sing?